0: Welcome to episode 76 of the Blooms and Barnacles podcast, where we talk about everything related to James Joyce's Ulysses.
1: I'm Kelly. And I'm Dermot.
0: How are you doing tonight, Dermot? Pretty good. Great. Well, I've got fantastic news for you. Mm -hmm. We're about to start Ulysses' fifth episode, Lotus Eaters. Wow. Before we dive into the episode, we just have a little bit of business up top. Blooms and Barnacles is a blog as well as a podcast, and I'm currently hard at work on our next blog post, which will be about Homeric Parallels and Ulysses' seventh episode, Aeolus. So keep your eyes peeled for that. You can, you'll find a link on social media when it's finished or on our website at
1: bloomsabarnacles.com. That's
0: right. On to today's podcast episode, though. Dermot is the artist for our podcast, and he's done some wonderful artwork, as always, for this episode. A very tasteful bit of illustration today. Would you like to tell us about your drawing that you've done?
1: Yes, it's uh, Leopold looking at a, a poster for the Brit- a recruiting poster for the British Army. And he starts musing on how they're all a bunch of syphilitics and uh, poxed human wrecks. So uh, I uh, And uh, I've got one with a British soldier um, in the company of a lady of the night. And if you look carefully she's picking his pocket
0: mm-hmm. and he's fairly inebriated yes he he kind of looks like he's doing like a like a Cossack dance a little bit a little bit that's yeah. a bit Russian
1: yeah
0: I'm not critiquing your image I, I really enjoy this it's um body and rude and likely to annoy the right people
1: mm-hmm.
0: so look for that on our social media or uh, in the show notes at our website at
1: Bloomsabarnacles.com.
0: Right. It'll be available right under that podcast tab under episode 76, Henry Flower esque. A few shout outs before we dive in. First of all, we have a free monthly newsletter you can subscribe to at our website,
1: bloomsabarnacles.com.
0: And at the top of every month, we'll send you previews of our upcoming episodes as well as links to that month's episodes and blog posts. So, You never have to go on social media again. If you would like to follow us on social media, we are also on Twitter and Facebook. Very easy to find. If you're already familiar with our show and you'd like to help us out, there's a few things you can do. First of all, we do gladly accept your monetary donations. How can someone donate if they'd like to pass us a few bits?
1: On bloomsofmarnacles.com, we have a little tip jar on the top right of the screen. You can donate there.
0: Mm -hmm. And this week, we'd like to thank...
1: William Dunbar and Paul Creener.
0: As well as all of our regular donors who, one by one, ask me to stop thanking them every time. We are still thankful to you. We're just not going to say your names. And finally, if you don't want to send us money, another way you can help us out is to leave a review on Apple Podcast or your podcast app of your choice. Although Apple still rules the podcast world. I keep promising we're going to read them if we get them and then not doing that, and then I go and look, and there are a few up there. So we're going to read one of those. This is a five-star review from a user called I'm Not Daedalus, entitled Joyciana in Portlandia, and Dermot's going to read their message.
1: Most Joyce for Beginners content isn't intended to function beyond the Wikipedia stage of engagement. That's where Blooms of Barnacles comes in. This wonderful show has managed not only to mirror the welcoming and informal atmosphere of a local Joyce reading group, but also proceeds slowly enough with the text that deep divers can revisit lost details. Kelly Bryan knows the book and comes armed with the critical tradition. Dermot O'Connor provides the requisite brogue and some of the best Ulysses caricatures I've seen. And the co-hosts are funny and newlyweds. Joyce people are the best people.
0: Thank you very much. We do appreciate your review. So listeners, if you want to be like, I'm not dead,less Go and leave a review, preferably five stars, though if you're really pissed off at us and you write a, a funny, angry review, we will read it and laugh. So uh, don't do that. <laughs> but if you do, we uh, might read it as well. Anyway, the enough of a, an aside there. Um, the reviews on Apple Podcasts really do help people find the show. It is a great... Way to help us out and won't take more than 30 seconds of your day. And we want to thank those who did. All right, that's enough thanking people. Let's move on to the text. So if you're following along at home, we're going to read the first few pages of Lotus Eaters. As we move through this text today and for subsequent episodes, we want to be on the lookout for lotuses. I mentioned in the episode just before this in your queue that... Joyce really wove the Homeric parallel of lotuses, quote unquote, into the into this episode pretty consistently. So, as we read, we should look for image imagery of flowers and intoxicants. See how many we can find. I don't actually want to count anything right now, so I'm not going to count them, but let's let's point them out as as we read, okay, Dermot? Okay. Let's jump in.
1: By lurries along Sir John Rogerson's quay, Mr. Bloom walked soberly, past Windmill Lane, Leesk's, the linseed crusher, the postal telegraph office. Could have given that address too, and past a sailor's home. He turned from the morning noises of the quayside and walked through Lime Street. By Brady's cottages, a boy for the skins lolled, his bucket of offal linked, smoking a chewed fagbut. A smaller girl with scars of eczema on her forehead eyed him, listlessly holding her battered cask hoop. Tell him if he smokes, he won't grow. Oh, let him. His life isn't such a bed of roses. Waiting outside pubs to bring Da home. Come home to my, Da. Slack hour. Won't be many there.
0: Thank you, Dermot. Any thoughts?
1: Seems straight enough. Like he's... Uh, his directions. Um, When Malene, is a Whatever a linseed crusher is. To make linseed oil. Yeah, I used to use linseed oil when I painted with oil paints. Um, postal telegraph office Um, let's see okay a boy for the skins doesn't register with me I don't know what that phrase is and a bucket of awful I don't know why he would have that that sounds really really disgusting and he like many boys at the time I was looking at some of Lewis Hines photographs this week and all these young boys paper boys smoking cigarettes my grandfather began smoking when he was about 11 12 um See um, a cask hoop. again. I'm not sure what that is. But other than that, it's like a general everyday kind of street scene. Sounds like.
0: Do you see any lotuses, any flowers, or intoxicants?
1: Mm-hmm. I guess linseed might be. Uh, lovely smell from that stuff. I more like mm-hmm. it uh, Sure,
0: so. I'd say there there are the scents of lotuses, things mm-hmm. that entice us with their smells. Mm-hmm. I I see the this young boy here he's smoking a a chewed fag butt or a Mm -hmm. cigarette butt so he's he's using tobacco yeah as a intoxicant i i don't know if you call it intoxicant but as a Mm. you know a way of soothing
1: addictive drug
0: sure and also his father's in the pub getting fairly intoxicated we can infer Mm -hmm. and then also his life isn't such a bed of roses so he doesn't have i guess this this nice smell of roses to to soothe his ills. So these these children come from quite a rough background. We'll we'll turn back to them in a minute. I say the most significant line in this to me is could have given that address to, which if you haven't read through Ulysses, hmm. is easy enough to either pass over or just think like I don't know what that is. So he says the post the postal telegraph office could have given that address to. So right now, even though we haven't been told explicitly, Bloom is headed towards the Westland Row post office in Dublin city center where he is receiving mail under a pseudonym. Westland Row isn't terribly close to Eccles Street.
1: No, it's quite a quite a walk mm-hmm.
0: and he's using a pseudonym because he doesn't want especially Molly or anyone he knows in his neighborhood to see him going in there and receiving Mail, so mm-hmm. he's using it as a this. This post office is sort of a blind, and he's kind of in the neighborhood. The postal telegraph office was at eighteen Rogerson's Key, and uh, he thought, "Oh, I could have used that one too. Maybe he could have two decoy, you know, addresses." Mm-hmm. He's kind of noting that, and if you're a discerning reader or a repeat reader, you might notice that too. By Brady's cottages, a boy for the skins Lulled. Brady's cottages according to gifford and sidman's annotations of ulysses were tenements that intersected lime street again we we can read that and know this is you know a, a rougher area the people who live here don't have much money their lives are probably very very hard in our episode about irish orientalism i think we talked a bit about how the the british empire at this point you know had had a lot of money sloshing around in it but Dublin, one of its its cities, was one of the, the poorest large cities in, in Europe. Mm. And so we, we do glimpse a little bit of that here. Ulysses is in many ways a very middle-class picture of Dublin. We don't often see the people who live in tenements or who struggle at things other than being a starving artist. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's certainly struggle in Ulysses, but not, not this level of struggle. So this is a, an acknowledgement of that. So this young child is a, a boy for the skins which means that he's a boy who's been out looking through trash heaps and garbage cans that would seem to rescue leftover offal which how would you describe awful? Uh,
1: just like bits of meat scrap meat yeah. I, w- I
0: would think yeah. of it as like an in- intestine or organ, yeah, you know yeah stomach intestine mm, things like that mm. that he's going to bring home to eat
1: well, incidentally, like anybody looking for a book that deals with the working class and underclass at this time, uh, *Strumpet City by James Plunkett, set around 1912, The Lockout, would mm-hmm. be the, the book to read, which focuses more tightly on that social strata. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. um, The girl, let's see, a small girl with scars of eczema on her forehead, eyed him listlessly holding her battered cask hoop. So a cask is like a... Like a a barrel that you might put whiskey or some other, I always think of a a whiskey cask, but it's, it's one of those old timey roundy barrels, wooden barrels, Mm -hmm. and there would be metal hoops around it to hold it together. And I think this is maybe a toy for her. Like, you know, kids would play with the the hoop and the stick. Yep. So this is, this is her toy as it's tossed off. Um, But what we would see is garbage. Mm -hmm. And we also see Bloom's empathy here because he sees this this young kid smoking, and he thinks, I think what most people listening would think, like, oh, young a young kid like that shouldn't be smoking. Let's let's try to convince him. Just say no. But then Bloom thinks, you know what? Let him. Like his life seems really hard. Mm-hmm. This is the one soothing lotus that he has. Yep. And he's imagining him going to the pub then to bring home his drunken father. And then at the end, he says, Slack hour, won't be many there. And that is another reference to the post office. He's expecting it to be empty, so he's not spotted. Okay. All right, let's continue.
1: He crossed Townsend Street, passing the frowning face of Bethel. L, yes, house of Aleph, Beth. And passed Nichols, the undertaker. At 11, it is time enough. Dare say Corny Kelleher bagged the job for O'Neill's, singing with his eyes shut. Corny. Met her once in the park. In the dark. What a lark. Police tout. Her name and address she then told with my tularoom tularoom tay. Oh, surely he bagged it. Bury him cheap I'll watch him call. With my tularoom, 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 tularoom. Okay. Thoughts? Um, Let's see. For some reason, he's going through the Hebrew alphabet. Aleph. Beth. I'm past Nichols. At 11 it is. I'm not sure what he's talking about. It's, oh, is that the funeral at mm-hmm. 11? Right, the funeral yes. of What's-His-Face? Teddy, uh, Teddy Dignam. So he said, time enough, so he'll ma- he's going to make it okay. Uh, I'm not sure who corny Kelleher is. Back the job for O'Neill's singing with his eyes shut. Corny. No idea. No idea. Um, and then he seems to be doing nonsense rhymes in the dark. What a lark. Police tout. Um, so somebody's informing to the cops. Um, I tour them, tour I think, I guess there's a song. Um, but I couldn't tell you what song it is. I it's like an earworm. He's got it in his mm-hmm. head. Yeah.
0: So Corney Kelleher, we will see him again in Hades in a bigger way. He also plays a, a very key role in Bloom and Stephen's greatest moment of peril. But I won't spoil that for you, Dermot. Mm-hmm. A lot of people in Ulysses are based on people that Joyce knew, but Corney Kelleher seems to be totally fictional. In Ulysses, he works for Henry J. O'Neill, who is a carriage maker and undertaker. And here we see Bloom walking past Nichols, the undertaker, which reminds him that Dignam's funeral is at 11. And then he thinks time enough, because this episode takes place at about 10 Mm o'clock. And then he thinks, oh, it must have been, you know, Corny Kelleher who kind of stepped in and and got the job for O'Neill's of burying patty oh. right so bloom's always kind of thinking about business right um and then singing with his eyes shut cor- corny corny is short for cornelius i believe so uh i don't know if his mother called him corny or not but uh, or if corny meant the same thing back then as it means now i mean we later meet a character named pisser burke so <laughs> I, I always feel like kind of anything goes mm-hmm. but uh this is a, a song the song then at the the end part of this is a, a song that Corny Kelleher sings, and we'll talk about that in a moment here. And we'll, we, it strikes a chord with Bloom and kind of sticks in his head. So before we get to the song, let's look at this line. At 11 it is. So at the end of Calypso, we saw Bloom thinking, what time is the funeral again? I'll have to grab a newspaper. So we can infer from this that he has bought a newspaper. And, indeed, he um, he's carrying a roll-up copy of the Freeman's Journal with him. Now, this probably seems all very tedious and, like, Kelly knows too many details about this, but I'm kind of teeing you up for a few episodes of Blooms and Barnacles down the line, or, if you're reading now, a few pages ahead in Lotus Eaters. So, more or less, Calypso begins at 8, and fills roughly the, the space of an hour. Lotus Eaters begins at 10. And then after Bloom takes his bath at the end, he ends up at, in Hades, which is uh, near, near Sandy, uh, Sandy Mount,
1: mm-hmm.
0: around 11. So this means between Calypso and Lotus Eaters, there's a missing hour. What did Bloom do at ten a.m.? Um, or excuse me, what did Bloom do at nine a.m.? Does this sound interesting at all to you?
1: Not at all.
0: Okay, it will be okay. Snitpicky, but this will matter right. because right. there's some missing time in Bloom's day, and some key details were um, disseminated during that missing hour. Okay. And the first hint we receive of that is that he's has a newspaper when previously he didn't have a newspaper. Sometimes reading Ulysses is about looking at the looking at the notes they're not playing. It's a a jazz age novel, right? It's looking at the negative space um, because this is a a novel in which we always kind of know where like Bloom's personal accoutrements are. We always know where his hat is. Mm -hmm. We always know where the the calling card inside the hat is we know where his potato is we know which pocket his lemon soap is so for an hour to go missing in his day
1: mm-hmm.
0: it's it's unusual okay it, it doesn't right. fit that pattern okay are you are you thinking in like two months i'm just gonna make you listen to a really boring
1: <laughs> <movie>? <laughs>
0: <No>. <laughs> all right let's talk about turulum look the
1: man's entitled to a little privacy it's so all i'm no, saying <laughs> no he's not
0: we just watched him take a dump <laughs> Right? We watched him mm. take a poo and then wipe his butt, but we don't know what he did in the hour after he did that. Right. Right. So, okay. Let's talk about Torulum Torulum Tay. So, met her once in the park in the dark, what a lark. All right, that's all rhyming, so we're like, okay, sounds songy. Please tout her name and address she told with my Torulum Torulum Te. Uh, this is a a song that Corny sings and now Bloom kind of has stuck in his head. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's not much we can really go on here, but we've got a whole book that comes after this that we can look through. So in Circe, the song gets more lyrics. I vowed that I would never leave her. She turned out a cruel deceiver. Does that sound like anyone that Bloom knows? Mm. Yeah. With my torulum, Torilum, torulum, torulum. So this is from a real song called I Vowed That I Would Never Leave Her by Arthur Lloyd. I couldn't find a recording of it, but I did find a, a song sheet that has the, you know, I, it has the, the musical notation and the lyrics on it. Right. So I will share that in the... So there's
1: no, like, nothing on YouTube with the song? I,
0: I, I couldn't find one. and I When I say that, I, sh- I should say I, I couldn't find one quickly. I didn't really dig okay. for it. Mm-hmm. Um, it yeah. Um, I did find a song sheet, though. So if you can play piano and sing, you can hear what it sounds like. But uh, I'll post that in the show notes, which people can find at
1: Bloomsandbarnacles.com
0: Right, and interestingly to me is that in this or, the original song sheet, it was originally Tootletum Tootletum Tay." So I've, I've wondered if if Joyce misremembered it, or if he just wanted to show Bloom misremembering it, because Bloom is not his memory is not accurate. Mm-hmm. But it. To- Tootletum becomes Turlum. There may have been more than one version of it, too, and I just I found the Arthur Lloyd version. I think it's kind of clear why this song has resonance with Bloom. Mm-hmm. I will say, too, on the site that I, I found the, the music sheet or the song sheet, it's uh, arthurlloyd.co.uk, and then there was an edit note at the bottom that said, you know, someone said that this song appears in Ulysses, which I did not know, and so I I checked it out, and it's definitely the song, so... Mm-hmm. It's, it's been vetted, I guess. Anyway, the the story of this song is that the, the singer of the song is in love with a girl, but the girl in the song marries a policeman instead of the singer, and then it gets really, like, hashtag nice guy vibes. Uh, lots of period misogyny. Um, so if, if that's your bag, this is the song for you. Get that piano out. Anyway, in Bloom's imagination... The girl in the song gets turned into a police informant. She was not in the song. She just married a policeman. So I think Bloom was kind of, you know, just having some fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it. I think the the lyrics sound like Molly, you know, or his his uh, a very unflattering description of how he feels about Molly, which he's on his way to pick up a, a letter from a, a woman he's been corresponding with. Mm-hmm. So... I think this is kind of a way for him to kind of build himself up. Like, yeah, Molly's so cruel. She's a deceiver. So it's okay for me to get letter from Martha Clifford. Right? That, that's kind of what I think's going on here. Yeah. Let's read the next.
1: In Westland Row, he halted before the window of the Belfast and Oriental Tea Company and read the legends of lead papered packets. Choice blend. Finest quality. Family tea. Rather warm. Tea. Must get some from Tom Kernan. Couldn't ask him at a funeral, though.
0: All right, um, I've edited it out. But Dermot was very curious about rather warm. It's hot up. It's it's the middle of June.
1: I was wondering, was he's he, th- was, he th- a black was he suit. thinking about mm-hmm. the day's weather or tea?
0: Now it's 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 a key here where he's marking on the warmth because warmth or hot weather can contribute to lethargy, mm-hmm. which we'll see played out more in Bloom's thoughts here, but. It's the Belfast and Oriental Tea Company, and there is definitely a connection between warm weather leading to lethargy, swath, lotus-eater-like behavior, and that being tied with, I'd say, imperialistic views of the Far East, that people are maybe kind of lazy, that hot weather makes people live at a slower pace of life, that they're not as industrious as their British counterparts. Yeah. Um, so we're kind of leading up to that. This is a a paragraph that's been broken down. Can I
1: just do like a little sidebar of all all these theories of why people from different climates are the way they are? Mm -hmm. One of the most famous books and that that kind of founded kind of the modern field of sociology was Ibn Khaldun's book, The Muqaddimah, written around 14, he died in 1406. Mm -hmm. And the big question in the Muslim world then is, how do we explain why the Muslim world is so advanced? And the Europeans, the Franks, are so backwards. And it has to be because they're cold. It must be because <laughs> they come from a cold climate. And all you can do in a cold climate is huddle around a fire in a damp, horrible house. And it doesn't leave you any time to relax and, and enjoy life and think and do you know do, do stuff other than have mushrooms growing under your armpits. <laughs> so it's really funny that these ideas, that these like uh, uh, reductionist ideas of why... These people are this and these people are that. It's because of their constant climate.
0: Well, there's a, a stereotype in the U.S. that Southern American Southerners are kind of slow-witted and lazy. Mm-hmm. But it also turns out that hookworm was very common in the southern United States f- for a long time, mm-hmm. which makes, you know, robs you of your nutrients and makes you lethargic and right. uh, causes, you know developmental issues in children mm-hmm. uh, cognitive impairment so you know, maybe it's hookworm <laughs> i don't want to talk about hookworm i want to talk about tom kernan uh we'll meet him in the next episode called hades uh he's a tea merchant uh and he was a converted protestant he's converted from protestantism to catholicism Good for him. if you are a reader of dubliners tom kernan is the center of the short story grace he like i said also plays a role in hades but in grace he gets too drunk and falls down a staircase and so his friends many of i think all of whom are also characters in ulysses yeah mccoy will show up later in this he was in grace as well they uh hold an intervention and take him to see uh a famous priest speak we'll get to know him better in the next chapter but a writer i like named mark austin referred to him as a holy fool so we'll get to see him through bloom's eyes and and bloom is not that impressed with him so we'll we'll save that for hades that's tom kernan but uh yeah he he wants to get he wants to get maybe a deal on some tea which you know we we've talked about the heat as a lotus effect tea a little bit too tea soothes what ails you and so he's going to go to Tom Kern for that maybe get a deal but you can't really wheel and deal at a funeral right so mm. today's not the day to do that all right next
1: while his eyes still red blandly he took off his hat quietly inhaling his hair oil and sent his right hand with slow grace over his brow and hair very warm morning under their dropped lids his eyes found a tiny bow of the leather headband inside his high grade hat just there his right hand came down into the bowl of his hat his fingers found quickly a card behind the headband and transferred it to his waistcoat pocket
0: what do you notice here
1: um well the the mystery card mm-hmm. um, I know the hat the misspelling that's a misspelling of hat for me I, remember I correctly. think
0: I think that inside the band of his hat it's worn out. it says plasto's high grade hat mm-hmm. and the T has rubbed off right that's how I've always imagined that Yeah. that's just my yeah my interpretation
1: yeah and uh, I'm guessing the card behind the headband is his uh mm-hmm. Literary paramour?
0: Well, we're going to see because this is where he deploys it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the only other thing I'd point out here is that he uh, smells the inside of his hat. He's smelling Mm -hmm. his own hair oil. Mm -hmm. And see that this... I mean, that's not in the real world like an intoxicating smell. But this kind of, you know, I think does the trick. This is his first step into Lotus Land because... Here he's, he smells that hair oil. It's a, you know, a, a, a scent that he enjoys. And then under their dropped lids, his eyes found. So he's getting kind of hmm. droopy, drowsy here. All right, let's continue.
1: So warm, his right hand once more, more slowly went over his brow and hair. Then he put on his hat again, relieved, and read again. Choice blend, made of the finest Ceylon brands. The far east. Lovely spot it must be. The garden of the world. Big lazy leaves to float about on. Cactuses. Flowery meads. Snakey lianas they call them. Wonder is it like that? Those Singalese lobbing about in the sun and dolce far niente. Not doing a hand's turn all day. Sleep six months out of twelve. Too hot to quarrel. Influence of the climate. Lethargy. Flowers of idleness. The air feeds most. Azotes. Hothouse and botanic gardens. Sensitive plants, water lilies, petals too tired to, sleeping sickness in the air, walk on rose leaves.
0: All right. So do you see he so he smells his hair oil and now he has this much more florid vision of a lotus, like a a, a lotus land. Mm -hmm. What what do you notice in this?
1: Yeah, he goes on a complete like Alice in Wonderland fantasy of the Far East.
0: You can hear the sitar music in the background. (laughs) Yes.
1: And uh, the the Orientalist tropes of everyone lolling around, not even working. Mm-hmm. Uh, good luck staying alive if you do that.
0: Or running a tea plantation. <laughs> if they're making tea, like that's it's labor intensive. Back-breaking work. Yeah.
1: yeah. Too hot to quarrel. It's like no. Um,
0: the yeah, Ceylon is now called Sri Lanka. Yeah, an island famously known for not having any in <laughs> conflict. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's see. And lots of flowers, like too many flowers to individually list. It's just yeah. like one after another after another.
0: Yeah. yeah, I'd say the lotus motif is pretty strong here. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, we don't need to point it out. It's, it's everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that, that's why I think he smells his hair oil and he's like, ah, like cue drug montage if this were a movie. Yep. Like I said, you can hear the the faux 60s sitar music in the background and the camera kind of swirls around him. And mm-hmm. he's you know. Anyway, you you get the idea. If you want, to, we've mentioned Orientalism a few times. I don't want to go into it too deeply here. We did two full episodes about it, so find those previously in your feed. The one you might want to listen to first is called the Orientalism Show. But yeah, as you pointed out, Dermot, this portrays the Far East, particular Ceylon, now known as Sri Lanka, as a place where folks are lazing about in the sun, doing nothing. Dolce far niente is Italian for sweetly doing nothing. Um, and this would be in comparison to the industrious Western men, the you know powerful men of the the British Empire, you know world builders, real captains of industry. And we'll we'll see an image of them at the the yes, end of this.
1: Sipping, like, sipping lemonade and uh, fanning themselves on the porch, while those singleese chaps. Oh, mm-hmm. would I wish they'd work harder. I'd have even more tea. And we'll yeah. see here too. I there's
0: this one little line. Wonder is it like that? And you, know, we can see that we like, yeah, Bloom knows he's just. Yeah. But look at let's look at this because we you know we're in a, a nitpicky mood today. Bloom is not convinced of the Orientalist dream, but maybe slightly more open here than he was in Calypso. Remember, he had his little fantasy mm-hmm. that was always reminds me of Aladdin, the yep. Disney's Aladdin, and he and that at the end he goes ah, probably not like it a bit, you mm-hmm. know. Probably not a bit like it, really. Yeah. He just dismisses it. But here he's like, "I wonder if it is like that." You know, so he's he's being affected, right? Mm-hmm. He's allowing himself to think, "I wonder if it's like that." Instead of saying, "No, it's BS." All right, continue.
1: Imagine trying to eat tripe and cow heel. Where was the chap I saw on that picture somewhere? Ah, yes, and the Dead Sea, floating on his back, reading a book with a parasol open. Couldn't sink if you tried. So thick with salt, because the weight of the water. No, the weight of the body in the water is equal to the weight of the what? Or is it the volume is equal to the weight? It's a law, something like that. Vance in high school, cracking his finger joints, teaching. The college curriculum, cracking curriculum. What is weight really when you say the weight? 32 feet per second per second, law of falling bodies per second per second. They all fall to the ground, the earth. It's the force of gravity of the earth as the weight.
0: Okay, any thoughts?
1: So that's the Dead Sea. He's thinking about and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, people floating on the uh, the water. Like you can't, you can't drown basically. Well, he could mm-hmm. drown, but it'd be very difficult. Um, yeah. So uh, he's kind of zapped now from um, Sri Lanka to uh, Palestine, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, it's like he's all over the place. But then he, you know, he he's kind of getting pulled back to reality. He's trying to get figure out the physics of it.
0: But look at the way he sees Palestine now. Before it was this like, you know, busy buzzing model Mm. farm and Mm. now it's like a guy floating floating and and putting in no effort, right? He's not like treading water or anything. The water just holds him up. Yeah. And I see here this too, this law of falling bodies per second per second. They all fall to the ground. The earth is the force of gravity of the earth is the weight. And you can see that as a bit of like the inevitability of death. Mm-hmm. We all fall through the earth eventually. Yeah. But I also, I always see it here as like, he's seeing it more as like, I'll fall and the earth will catch me and I'll just relax and mm-hmm. it'll be warm. And I'll float and it'll be nice. And I won't need to remember the exact wording of Newton's second law. <laughs> yeah. The dead sea image though, of the, the man reading a book with a parasol is a real image. I'll put it in the show notes if you want to see it. It's a fanciful image for sure, but it's definitely real. Mm-hmm. More, more accurate than the the dolce Farniente.
1: Not, not a practical. I'm looking at it right now, and the way he's holding the book cannot be comfortable because no, it's yeah, it's a it's, it's a posed. silly photograph. Yeah, yeah. yeah,
0: It's it's I think was taken not because he's you know reading Ulysses or whatever beach mm-hmm. read he's got there, but it's just like wouldn't it be funny if he did that? Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's keep
1: going. He turned away and sauntered across the road. How did she walk with her sausages? Like that something. As he walked back, he took the folded freeman from his side pocket, unfolded it, rolled it lengthwise in a baton and tapped it at each sauntering step against his trouser leg. Careless air. Just drop in to see. Per second, per second. Per second for every second, it means. From the curbstone he darted a keen glance through the door of the post office. Too late, box. Post here. No one. In.
0: So what goes on here?
1: So is she is he thinking again of the the, the, the housemaid with the who yes. bought the sausages?
0: Yes, <laughs> he's trying to look slick as he slips into the post office. Right, and right. And so he's trying to think, how did she walk? You know, she was walking all sexy, like <laughs> yeah. I'll just I'll just walk real smooth like her. Right. I, I think that's kind of what he's getting mm-hmm. here.
1: And then he's got the folded Freeman's Journal, right? That's the newspaper. Yes. Um unfolded it, rolled it lengthwise, and tapped it. So I think he's gonna He's like,
0: trying to look really casual, but yeah, I think he's doing yeah. so many things that he probably looks really, really suspicious. Really
1: awkward. <laughs> yeah. Careless air. Uh, yeah. Just drop in to see. Yeah. Like, oh yeah. Nothing to see here. I'm just going to you know have an imaginary affair with a woman whom I probably never even meet. Um, God, this guy needs the internet. Um, let's see. From, from the curse. I just,
0: yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a theory that she's catfishing him. She's, yeah. Ignatius Gallagher or some other Joyce King right, character right. we'll get into that oh, sorry God. I interrupted you keep going
1: um, so yeah t- too late box post here no one in uh, so is that too th- the, the box is closed is that it like you can't put it in but,
0: maybe what I'm not sure what too late box means but post here means that the post has arrived for the day so mm-hmm. if there's a letter waiting for him that it would have been delivered right, All right. and he sees no one and he goes in right Keep going.
1: He handed the card to the brass grill. Are there any letters for me? He asked. While the postmistress searched a pigeonhole, he gazed at the recruiting poster with soldiers of all arms on parade and held the tip of his baton against his nostrils, smelling fresh printed rag paper. No answer, probably. Went too far last time. The postmistress handed him back to the grill his card with a letter. He thanked her and glanced rapidly at the typed envelope. Henry Flower, Esquire. Care of P.O. Westland Row, city. That's. So this is the, the he's, he's thinking like his last letter, clearly he was a bit too forward. Mm-hmm. Maybe he scared her off, but he hasn't. So she's still writing to him. And Henry Flower Esquire, we have a flower again. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, Bloom is a flower. Yes. And uh, he's just getting a post office. So he she doesn't know his address. Mm hmm. He's not doxxed himself yet.
0: Yeah, and he's—he's he's, this is his, his blind. He's that's mm-hmm. he could he could have gone to the postal telegraph office. Maybe he could have had two. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll see the the origin of his his pen pal later on.
1: But
0: mm-hmm. yeah, and I think I've, I've mistakenly said before that he had her letter in his hat. That is not accurate. Um, he has a, a calling card, mm-hmm. like a, a a name card with with this printed on it. And again, like he hides it from Molly because if there's a card hanging around the house. It's, you know, and she sees it, she's gonna say, Who's Henry Flower? Mm-hmm. Esquire. Come on. So it's it's gonna raise too many questions. Yep. Yeah. yeah, so um right went too far last time. We're just gonna let that hang out there. Uh he wasn't sure if he'd get correspondence back, but she did. We'll explore what that might mean in a later episode. Um and you see here he takes another hit off his lotus. Uh he holds the, the newspaper up against his nostrils and Smells the fresh ink on the paper. Mm-hmm. It's good shit, man. Let's keep let's keep going. Uh, our last paragraph
1: answered. Anyhow, he slipped card and letter into his side pocket, reviewing again the soldiers on parade. Where's old Tweedy's regiment? Cast-off soldier. There, bearskin cap and hackle bloom. No, he's a grenadier. Pointed cuffs. There he is, Royal Dublin Fusiliers. Red coats. Too showy. That must be why the women go after them, uniform, easier to enlist and drill. Maud Gon's letter about taking them off O'Connell Street at night. Disgrace to our Irish capital. Griffith's paper is on the same tack now, an army rotten with venereal disease, overseas or half sea over empire. Half-baked they look, hypnotised-like. Eyes front, mark time, table, able, bed, ed, the king's own. Never see him dressed up as a fireman or a bobby. A mason, yes. Thoughts? <laughs>
0: this is the inspiration for your, your image.
1: Yeah, I kind of simplified it, bit. I think he's looking at a poster with more than one type yeah. of soldier on it, and I, I reduced. I didn't want to draw four or five of them. Mm. Um, what What you've
0: done is, is just right.
1: <laughs> so uh, he he's, whatever his knowledge is of Tweedy's regiment, Tweedy being Molly's uh, father, his yes. father-in-law who had all these far-fetched stories about fighting in Rourke's Drift in South Africa. Um the bearskin cap, that's the big, gigantic one that the guys outside Buckingham Palace wear, yeah, whatever they are. Um the Beef Eaters. Beef Eaters, yes. Um Royal Dublin Fusiliers, red coats too showy. So yeah, so that must be the women go after them. Yeah, they like a man in uniform. Um Maud letter about taking them off O'Connell Street at night. I know from previous discussions that was Maud Ghosn who would approach women on O'Connell Street and tell them to go home because they were whores. And uh, I, I think weren't there incidents where she uh, accosted women who weren't actually prostitutes? We and will
0: we will get into this.
1: Yes. Yeah. A moral busybody that one. Um, Griffith's paper. So this is Arthur Griffith, the founder, Sinn Féin, um, accusing the British Army been being rotten with VD. Um Traveling probably were so half picked they look hypnotized again lotus eaters so they're all being consumed by whatever gonorrhea or syphilis they've got <laughs> or uh, booze or, or all of them
0: yeah half sees over means like half in the bag
1: mm, okay yeah like I I know the British army is as much as worried about venereal disease as they were about bullets because you know it could it could run through a regiment. um Eyes front mark time. I don't know what this table colon able, bed colon Ed. I have no idea what that is. You
0: will before we're uh, done.
1: Okay, the king's own, and then he says never see him. I presume that's the king dressed up as a farmer or a bobby, but a mason. Yes, he is a Freemason.
0: He was like uh, the Freemason. Oh no,
1: absolutely. Yeah. Uh, the Duke of Edinburgh died recently. as was a thirty-third degree Mason. Uh, Prince Philip. Prince Philip. Yeah, yeah. Um, the royal family is all well in with the Masons. They kind of have to be. Yeah.
0: All right, well, let's let's go through this point by point. Yeah, you're dead on the soldiers are definitely set up as Lotus, Eager, Lotus Eater correspondents. Before we look at them, let's talk about Major Brian Tweedy, father of Marion, a.k.a. Molly. We talked quite a bit about Old Tweedy back in episode 65, which is entitled Old Tweedy's big mustaches, so if you'd like to know more about him and why we're so we're going to be so focused on details of his story, you should go listen to that, but he is an unreliable narrator. Part of the Major Tweedy mythos is that he was a member of the Royal Dublin Fusiliers. If you want to know a lot more about British military uniforms of this time, you should check out the Gifford and Seidman annotation. They go way into it. I am not going to. Because while I find what Bloom did at certain times of day interesting, I do not find military <laughs> uniforms interesting. So you have to you have to go thumb through that. What we need to know for our purposes is that Bloom is confusing the uniform of the Royal Dublin Fusiliers with that of the Grenadier Guards. So he kind of mixes them up. I, th- I think what he says here is not quite on the nose. But he does seem to think that his father-in-law was a member of the Royal Dublin Fusiliers. Now, given Tweedy's timeline in Gibraltar, which we touched on in a bit a bit more depth back in that other episode, um, and Major Tweedy's casual relationship with the truth, if he even was Major Tweedy, it's very questionable that he was ever a member of the Fusiliers. They were indeed stationed in Gibraltar at one time, but only for a one year in 1884. And it seems unlikely that Tweedy would have been stationed there if he'd been a member of that organization, which was founded earlier in, in 1881. He had, he was already in Gibraltar when Molly was born there in 1870. And like I said, the unit wouldn't be founded for another 11 years. So like maybe he joined after their founding, maybe, but like it really seems like he stayed there with Molly because we, uh, you know, we know she was there in when she was 15 and it seems like she was there probably there longer than that. So, you know, he could have moved around and left her there. I don't know. It, it just doesn't seem it doesn't quite add up. But yeah, Tweet, we discuss in episode 65 why Tweety was likely in Gibraltar consistently after 1880, because long story short, he was likely a drum major, but not a major. Also, Tweedy's two big brags, which were that he fought at Rourke's Drift and he fought at Plevna, do not in any way involve the Royal Dublin Fusiliers, and both took place before the Fusiliers' founding, and he didn't really say much more about his exploits with the Royal Dublin Fusiliers, so I don't know. There's some holes in that story, and he, as I said, he's a very unreliable narrator, so this is all a lot of words to say he probably was not in that yeah. regiment yeah. it seems unlikely uh Maud gone Dermot is excited to talk about Maud gone she we wrote a blog post about her called Maud gone you can find that at our blog um she was an irish revolutionary and a mm-hmm, yates was very in love with her i don't like when people call her Yeats's muse because mm-hmm. she did a lot of stuff on her own yep. um she 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 and james joyce uh, had one brief and awkward altercation in paris in the early 1900s that later caused her son to possibly not repatriate joyce's remains for that reason it's all in the blog post go check it out she's an interesting person um, but this is a, a blunder of mods. But I would urge anyone listening, whether it's Dermot or you, dear listener, to not judge old Maud gone for this because she is an interesting person, like yes. I said. Yeah. She, like I said, she was an Irish revolutionary. She was very pro, very Irish nationalist and uh, was an activist in the early 20th century. During the Boer War, which I believe was 1900 to 1901, uh, the British army tried to boost enlistment because they needed to send their boys down to fight in South Africa. Uh, They wanted to boost enlistment by not requiring men stationed in Dublin to stay in the barracks at night. So normally they'd have a curfew. Uh, They, you know, they couldn't go out on the town at night, but they said, hey, you join. We're we're not going to do that. You can go out carousing if you want, which led to all sorts of wanton and unchaste acts with the prostitutes of Dublin. Maud Gaughan was appalled by this behavior of Irish women consorting with the enemy. And she wrote about this in her autobiography, A Servant of the Queen. I'll put a link to that in our show notes at...
1: BloomsandMarnacles.com
0: And she wrote that, quote... O'Connell
1: Street at night used to be full of redcoats walking with their girls.
0: She and members of her nationalist organization, na Naherin, which means Daughters of Ireland in Irish took to the streets, handing out pamphlets to couples condemning, quote, Irish girls consorting with the enemy of their country. So she basically went around slut-shaming women who, you know, if they were sex workers, were likely impoverished, just doing their job, man, and and shaming them, slut-shaming them for doing what they needed to survive. Or, you know, women who weren't sex workers who... I don't know. They, they were into the, the British soldiers, if you, if you could imagine. I, I don't want to judge them for that. Modgon did that for all of us. Yeah, I, I think there were instances of, of her assuming people were prostitutes when they weren't. It was not a popular um, activity or action or what you want to call it. Modgon's group of women often traveled in the company of male guards to defend them when inevitable altercations arose because even if they weren't pissing off the women, the soldiers who were accompanying them were also not a fan of this. So I think this little toss-off comment, though, from Bloom foreshadows Stephen's run-in with the English privates Carr and Compton in Circe, which, again, is kind of the climax of the novel. So it's a little bit of foreshadowing there. Griffith's paper is on the same tack now, an army rotten with venereal disease overseas or half-seas-over empire. Griffith is Sinn Féin founder Arthur Griffith, who ran a nationalist paper at this time called The United Irishman, and their position was also that British soldiers being in Dublin was not good. Uh, Bloom works for the Freeman's Journal as an ad canvasser, which is another nationalist paper, but... Bloom's own opinion on this particular issue seems maybe a bit ambivalent, uh, in part because his he has a family connection to the military. We've talked about he thought Major Tweedy was kind of cool. Like when he's looking at him on the poster, he's trying to find his regiment because I think he had a good relationship with his father-in-law. However, on the other hand, Bloom is no loyalist. He's no Mr. Deezy. We can base this on his unflattering comments here about the British Empire's armed forces. He, uh, you know, takes on a lot of, uh, uh, you know, hallowed things in this chapter, the, the army and the uh, Catholic Church, and mocks them in a way that I quite enjoy. So the soldiers on the recruiting poster, as Dermot's mentioned, were, are, are meant to be correspondents for the Homeric Lois Cedars. They are in the grips of the hypnotizing vices of sex and booze. Who doesn't love that stuff? Uh, as I mentioned, half-sees-over means drunk or tipsy. So they just seem kind of drunk. The whole empire seems a little drunk on itself. I mean, it's it's pretty straightforward. They're, they're a bunch of <laughs> drunkards riddled with uh, sexually transmitted diseases. They're pretty gross and debauched and... Uh, not the upstanding citizens that poster might want to do And are.
1: a few years from now, when push comes to shove, they'll be spraying Croke Park with guns, mm-hmm. killing a bunch of innocent people and getting the fun started. Yeah, predictable. Mm-hmm.
0: All right. Eyes front, mark time, table able, bed ed. Dermot wants to know what this is. So here Bloom is imagining the Britain's finest here at drill practice. Doing as they're told by some bossy sergeant major in a oh, big so. hat. So it'll be, eyes, front, mark, time, table, able, bag, Yeah, those some last few that. syllables you were asking about, yes, um, are meant to mimic chants that are used while marching. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's that's mm-hmm. all the, the rhymes there. Yeah, I see. So the men following orders in the situation are trained not to think for themselves. That's a kind of lotus, you know.
1: Mm-hmm. You
0: might be getting drunk or... Sleeping around, those are things that dull the senses, but this dulls the mind in a different way. This is not a lotus for physical comfort, but perhaps it mums the distress of having to make difficult decisions or kill people in the heat of battle. I was just following orders, sir. Sorry about all those war crimes. The Boer War had its share of war crimes. All you have to do is obey and try not to get your head blown off. And if that causes you stress, go ahead. Dull those bad vibes with prostitutes and hooch.
1: Lotus eaters. Can't go wrong.
0: James Joyce said it here. Uh, the king's own. Never see him. Dressed up as a fireman or a bobby, a mason. Yes. You read that much better than me. Uh, it's not just common men who find comfort in the author- authoritarian structure of the military. no. King Edward VII himself liked to go around dressed in military garb, though Bloom astutely notes that His Majesty did not honor firemen or policemen in the same way. He liked to play at military, but he didn't like to play at fireman or policeman. And yes, Edward VII was a Freemason. He was Grand Master of the United Grand Lodge of England between 1874 and when he ascended to the throne. In 1901.
1: Also, if my memory is correct, notorious for carousing. He he got so drunk and lost that one of his courtiers built him a special walking stick where he could screw the top off and there was a compass in it so that he could navigate his way back to Buckingham Palace at night.
0: They so couldn't find his way home, but he was he could still use a compass? Yeah, and
1: that... that was the idea. Okay. Because you get lost. he would be like, oh, at least, well, your majesty, go ahead north. My at least you'll get within like two <laughs> miles of...
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, he's a, a lo- lotus eater, running the
1: uh, mm-hmm. the
0: whole lotus crew. Yeah. yeah. Not Bloom, though. He's not a drinker. Not mm. a gambler. He just likes the <laughs> smell of his hair oil. <laughs> uh, Bloom has his vices, as we'll see, but he's not a drinker. That's for sure. Yeah. He's not into substances that much.
1: Better of a wank on Sandy Mount Strand a once in a Yeah,
0: all. like I said, he has his vices, and we'll <laughs> we'll come to that. Save the the wanking for later on. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because he had trouble getting Dublish, Dubliners published because he made a rude comment about Edward the Seventh in it. And uh, he, you know, didn't really shy away from that here either. Mm. And it didn't get this one banned. It was uh, the beach wanking. Well, um, are we going to end on beach wanking or do you have any other thoughts? No,
1: well, that's about good enough. That's <laughs> about good enough. All I, right. I do want Lapsang tea, though. All this talk of tea is... Uh, me going.
0: All right. Well, the cat's squeaking outside. You're, mm-hmm. You've got... <laughs> <laughs> you've got a hankering for some tea. Let's make it happen. All right. Uh, if you want to find out how to get in touch with us, stick around for the outro. Until then, see you in two weeks. See you then. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Blooms and Barnacles podcast. Your support means the world to us. You can subscribe to Blooms and Barnacles on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Spotify, or any other place you listen to podcasts. You can also stream our episodes at our website, bloomsandbarnacles.com. That's bloomsandbarnacles.com. If you've enjoyed our podcast, you can do one of three things to help support us. Number one, please donate at bloomsandbarnacles.com. The PayPal donate button is at the upper right-hand corner of the page. This helps us pay for coffee and for hosting fees. Two, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice. This helps more people find our show. And Three, share us with a friend who you think would enjoy Blooms and Barnacles. Blooms and Barnacles is also a blog. We post new articles and original artwork semi-regularly at bloomsandbarnacles.com. Never miss an update by following us on social media. Search for our group Blooms and Barnacles podcast on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at BarnacleCast. You can also send us an email at bloomsandbarnacles at gmail.com. That's bloomsandbarnacles at gmail.com. We met some of our favorite podcast friends through random emails and social media DMs. We'd love to hear from you too, so don't be afraid to shoot us a message anytime. We'll be back in your feed in two weeks. Bye for now.